Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Danny Faith Leonard. She just saw a penis for the first time, and she wouldn't shut the fuck up about it. <laughs> that and more, but before that, Risk is live July 19th in LA at Hotel Cafe. We're live July 21st at Caveat in New York City. We are in Detroit at the Magic Bag on July 30th. And then on July 31st, we're at Lincoln Hall in Chicago. Come on out. There's nothing that compares to seeing Risk live on stage. And you can get your tickets and learn more about the live streams and all that at risk-show.com slash tour. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. This is Mouse on Mars behind me now, and we just heard a cover of the Risk theme song by Freddie Morris. We've been loving these covers. If you want to take a shot at it, do a cover of the Risk theme song. Everything you need to know is at risk-show.com slash music. Now, we're calling this week's episode Schlongs. A great word, a terrific body part, and the subject of two fun stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear one from Brian Kett, who sometimes teaches for us at our school at thestorystudio.org. But first, a story that Danny Faith Leonard shared at a recent Risk Live show at Caveat in New York. Danny's fantastic show called Adult Sex Ed has upcoming performances in LA and New York, and you can find her on Instagram at Danny F. Leonard. Here she is now with a story we call I Saw the Peen.
Have you ever had a story that you've been telling yourself for a really long time and then something happens and that story is completely turned on its head? I think we all have these stories from our past and these things that we've been holding on to. And sometimes when you have a lot of time to think about it, it completely changes. And in the last couple of years, we've all had a lot of time to reflect. So I'm going to tell a story that's like that for me, where after a lot of reflection, I am finally able to see the other person's perspective. And this story begins when I was just 13 years old. I grew up in a fairly conservative town. It was kind of like the town from the movie Footloose was dropped into Long Island, and then they added some weird backyard wrestling. It was only 40 minutes outside of Manhattan, and for some reason, I was the only Jew. I don't even know how that's possible, but it was possible because it's true. So as a child, my place in the social hierarchy of this town was not great. I had a ton of food allergies before that was like a popular thing. So I was like very, very sickly. I had a problem with one of my legs and I had to wear a brace. I wore glasses, I had braces, and then to make things completely unbearable, there was something so wrong with my vision that sometimes I had to wear an eye patch. Yes, so being an eye patch girl, not fun. Uh, Basically, I was this little Jewish pirate in a closed-minded town is what I'm telling you. And so, like so many kids, school held a lot of value for me because things were really stressful at home. So when I was about 13 years old, my father was on the verge of a nervous breakdown that sometimes left him almost comatose and at other times completely rageful. So really, when I went to school, it was like my escape. And I so desperately wanted to fit in, but it just didn't seem to be possible because the other kids were taking classes to prepare for their communion and listening to Tool. And I was preparing for my bat mitzvah and writing spec scripts for Seinfeld. And they were really good, really, really good. But luckily by the time I reached middle school, at least physically, I was starting to come into my own. I um, sprouted tits, as you do, got rid of the eye patch, got rid of the glasses, I got some contacts, and I was starting to at least fit in a little bit more, and I really found my key for fitting in. So at school, because this was a conservative town, we had abstinence-only sex ed. And basically, we learned about the diseases and all of the terrible things that would happen to you when you had sex. And we spent most of the semester watching Philadelphia to learn that if you have sex, you will get AIDS. And if you get really skinny in Hollywood, you will win prizes. (laughs) That was my takeaway. And it was taught by our gym teacher inside the wrestling gym, which was covered with these really sticky mats that probably carried scabies. And uh, he was a really lovely man. He had lost part of his leg in a motorcycle accident. So the kids called him half-calf because kids really suck. And uh, for me, growing up at home, my sex experience was very, very different. My mom was actually a sex ed teacher for a while. Not mine, thankfully, but my house was so open. So I had all of this information and it was information that I could use to my advantage. 
And in middle school, all of the information that girls knew about sex, we would share with each other during lunch break. And if the weather was nice, we were allowed to eat outside and we would take over this little alcove that was outside of the gym. And in our little alcove, the teachers couldn't hear us. And I would give these impromptu sex ed lessons in a hushed voice to make sure that no one would hear. If you wanted to know about birth control, I would tell you all about its history, about how the ancient Egyptians actually used crocodile dung mixed with honey and shoved it up there, and it was alkaline, so it worked as a spermicide, and now you can buy birth control from your pharmacist. And if you wanted to know about blowjobs, I really didn't know how to give one, but I would try to tell you how. And so my lessons weren't exactly accurate, but I reveled in the fact that I had more information than them and that half-calf was on the other side of the door, and I was doing his job, and I was doing it really well. But most importantly, I was becoming popular. And I did hit a little roadblock. So all of the girls were really competitive, and we were very competitive about our firsts, about our first kiss, our first boyfriend, the first time your science teacher hits on you. And I had this friend, Kathy, and she just saw a penis for the first time. And she wouldn't shut the fuck up about it. <laughs> so I felt like I needed to catch up to her. I can't get left behind. This is the only social capital that I have. I need to see a penis too. And I was really, really lucky because I was about to have one in close proximity. So given the climate of this town and like the general lack of culture, our school thought that we should do an exchange program with a town that was right outside of Stockholm, Sweden. And I was so excited that my parents let me participate. We didn't have an extra bed. We only had one full bathroom for all of us. But I found out that there was going to be a boy staying in my house. A couple of weeks later, we picked Frederick up from the airport, and to a 13-year-old girl, this boy, who was the same age as me, was an Adonis, six foot three, 100 pounds. His body is like a foot across from side to side, and I thought he was phenomenal. He had a blonde boy band mushroom haircut, he and his friends all wore neon windbreakers, like modern-day fuckboys in Bushwick. It was amazing. And the rest of the Swedes were really, really friendly, but Frederick didn't say a word. He was like a Viking mute. So we put on Ace of Base, and I, I swear he smiled. And so this first week that he was visiting, we did everything possible to get this kid to be comfortable. My mom made him meatballs. Maybe this was misguided, but we took him to Ikea. We had him read out the names of all of the furniture. <laughs> Welcome to America. And, uh, you know, we played ABBA. We really, really tried. But if you've ever bought furniture from Ikea, you know how there's always a piece missing? That was the perfect metaphor for Frederick. There was just a piece missing. But the one thing that he was very comfortable with, and this was really, really great for me, was nudity. 
you know, it's very obvious to us now that Europeans are way more comfortable with their bodies or have traditionally been than Americans have been, and especially Scandinavians. So he stayed in this house, and every time he took a shower, which was like maybe once a week, he, uh, he showered with the door cracked open a little bit. And I knew that that was my opportunity, but I was so shy. I couldn't let myself take a look. And besides, he was becoming, over time, a really important part of my life. I took my tall, unfriendly friend with me everywhere that I went. He hung out with my friends. He went to family parties. He tore it up with the grandmas at my cousin's bar mitzvah. And it was really nice to have an extra man around the house, especially one who was like a foot taller than my dad. There was no fighting. It was amazing. He could reach the top shelf. And we were like flirty awkward. So for me, it was like a dream. But his trip eventually was going to come to an end. And a few weeks had passed. And I found out that Kathy was still out there bragging about her peen show. And I decided that it was time for me to become a woman and it was time for me to finally see a dick. So the next time he took a shower, I made sure that my parents weren't around and I lingered outside the door. And I finally saw it. Uncircumcised, flaccid, <laughs> hot pink, probably from the steam of the shower. He shook himself off to dry, smacked himself in both ass cheeks because they're like three inches apart. And there it was, but I lingered outside the door too long. And when he came out of the bathroom very, very suddenly, my hand caught his penis. And here I was just wanting to see a penis for the first time, and I was losing my hand virginity. <laughs> he looked bewildered, maybe a little excited, and I was mortified. I ran into my room, and he had a few more weeks in the US, and for that time, he suddenly was animated, talking a ton, speaking perfect English, and I was the mute. And so eventually, he left, he went home, and I went back to the alcove to tell my slightly exaggerated tale of the time that I shook hands with someone's penis. The girls were wide-eyed. They were so excited to hear my story, except for Kathy, of course. She had a lot of questions. Did it make a smack or a thwack? And I was like, I don't know, Kathy, if a hand slaps a penis in the woods and no one else is there to hear it, does it even make a sound? And for this one brief period of time, I was the most popular girl in eighth grade. Thank you so much. I woke up this morning with a bad hangover and my penis was missing again. This happens all the time, it's detachable. This comes in handy a lot of the time I can leave it home when I think it's going to get me in trouble Or I can rent it out when I don't need it 
But now and then I go to a party, get drunk, and the next morning I can't, for the life of me, remember what I did with it. First I looked around my apartment and I couldn't find it. So I called up the place where the party was, they hadn't seen it either. I asked them to check the medicine cabinet, cause for some reason I leave it there sometimes, but not this time. So I told them if it pops up to let me know. I called a few people who were at the party, but they were no help either. I was starting to get desperate. I really don't like being without my penis for too long. It makes me feel like less of a man, and I really hate having to sit down every time I take a leap. After a few hours of searching the house and calling everyone I could think of, I was starting to get very depressed, so I went to the Kiev and ate breakfast. Then as I walked down Sicken Avenue towards St. Mark's Place where all those people sell used books and other junk on the street, I saw my penis lying on a blanket next to a broken toaster oven. Some guy was selling it. I had to buy it off him. He wanted 22 bucks, but I talked him down to 17. I took it home, washed it off, and put it back on. I was happy again, complete. People sometimes tell me I should get it permanently attached, but I don't know. Even though sometimes it's a pain in the ass, I like having a detachable penis. They put on Ace of Base. Ace of Base. Ace of Base. Sweden with free health care and a solid respect for science and my school sets up an exchange program to figure out how the other half lives. I get to the airport and I see Danny. She's like a 13 year old's dream. Big swollen tits and a tan line from an eye patch. I get into her mom's Honda Odyssey and I'm so hard. They put on Ace of Base and these ignorant people take me to Ikea they make me read out the names of the furniture. Billy Bookcase. I'm so fucking mad, and I should be. But I just keep thinking this one thing. By the end of this trip, this girl's gonna see my dick. So every week or so, I take a shower with the door cracked open, thinking that she's going to be waiting for me. And then finally, the day arrives. I'm taking a shower. I look outside the door, and I see her raccoon eye. So I get out of the shower, I look down at myself, my dick's hot pink. I shake it off from side to side, I smack both of my ass cheeks. They're about three inches apart, it's not hard. I think about doing a pinwheel and then I'm like, no, no, too far. So then I see that little mouse face outside the door and I decide, all right, Freddy, it's time to fuck this shit up. And I leap outside the door and I high five her with my penis. I go back to Sweden a few weeks later as a hero.
Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I am a pretty anxious person, and uh, I'm especially anxious about my health. It's like I always just kind of manage to get in the way of my own well-being. And uh, I can trace this. This kind of took shape back when I was in middle school. And I can really pinpoint this to three events that took place. And they're very innocuous events, but they really shaped me. It's that formative time. One was in sixth grade. One was in seventh grade, one was in eighth grade. So when I was 11, 12, and 13. And uh, just to paint a picture, at this point in time, I weighed 88 pounds, and I had a bowl cut, and I wore jean shorts all year round, and I carried around a pocket watch, and like not ironically, I, I carried it around in the hopes that someone would ask me what time it was so I could just show them like an old-timey train conductor. And so... <laughs> Suffice to say, uh, none of these stories are about dating because that you know, clearly wasn't even an option. And so, some anecdotes. In sixth grade, a kid in my class told me that sleeping on your back was bad for your spine, and if you did it, you would die. And this was before the internet, so I just believed him, right? There's no way to corroborate this, and I was terrified. And I said, okay, simple enough. I'm just, I'm just never going to sleep on my back again. Like, I can do this. So I'd fall asleep on my right side, and when I had to, like, change position, I would just, like, kind of whip my bowl cut over, and I quickly <laughs> moved to my left side so my back wouldn't touch the mattress because I didn't want to die. And this went on for, like, years, and now I, I can I sleep on my back. It's quite nice, but I really... I missed out, right? It was comfortable, um, but at least I played it safe in my mind. So it was kind of embedded right there. Seventh grade, gym class, uh, playing volleyball. The game is not happening. I'm standing off in the corner by myself. No one's nearby. I managed to fall down, and I fell down. I landed on my wrist, and my wrist really started hurting, and it kind of hurt more and more throughout the day. So when I got home, I told my parents, and they said, well, we, we better take you to get an x-ray. We don't know what's going on. So we, we went to the doctor, and the doctor took an x-ray, and he looked at it, and he said, quote, yeah, I don't think this is broken. And my parents were like, great. We're so glad we got it checked at anyway. Better safe than sorry. The doctor's like, yeah, I'm glad you came in. And I was really worried about, like, long-term damage to my wrist for some reason. So I said, actually, doctor, 
I think it would be best if I had a cast just to, just to play it safe. And in hindsight, I don't know if this guy went to medical school or if he had a degree or if we were even in a hospital because he just looked at me, the seventh grader, giving out medical advice and he said, yeah, okay, whatever you want. And so he started wrapping these wet strips of plaster around my wrist. And I was just reflecting upon this thinking, okay, this is great. I'm going to avoid all this long-term damage. And this is going to gain some notoriety for me at school because kids are going to sign my cast. And I really needed something because the pocket watch thing was not working out whatsoever. As I was reflecting on all of this, uh, my hand started to feel kind of odd. And I looked down and my fingers were all purple because he had wrapped the plaster way too tight and then it dried and it cut off all the circulation in my hand. And he saw this and he freaked out and he took that like buzz saw and he cut a slit up the front and up the back to relieve the pressure. But because I didn't need a cast, he didn't give me a new cast. He just <laughs> held those two halves together with one hand and then he wrapped my forearm in like three inches of medical gauze and that's how I lived the next six weeks with a broken cast wrapped like with this massive forearm. And no one at school signed my cast because no one even knew I had a cast. And when I, when I got the cast off, my hand was still like tiny and my wrist was all shriveled like a, like a mummy's arm. And it didn't bode well for me, but it, like at least I played it safe. So it was getting a little more. And when I was in eighth grade, I was at my friend John's birthday party. And John's still one of my best friends. I talked to him every week and he... He was an all-American swimmer in college. He grew up swimming. He's one of those pool kids. I've never been the pool kid. I like, I'm not a great swimmer. There's the kids who are like touching the bottom of the deep end, right? It's like, oh, I touched it. Did you touch it? And I always be like, yeah, I totally touched it. I never, I've never touched it. I've made peace with that as an adult. So we were in the pool. We were having a nice time. I was not touching the deep end. I was kind of just clinging to the side. And uh, we got out for some birthday cake. And it was a sponge cake. It was quite nice. And I had my slice. And then everyone's like, we're getting back in the water. Everyone got back in the water. But then I remember that adage about waiting an hour to swim after eating because you might cramp up. And I had this fear lodged in my head of like, if I touch the water, my body's just going to seize up and just become like iron. I'm just going to sink down to the bottom of the, I'm finally going to touch the deep end. I'm going to drown. And so I'm like, I'm just going to wait this one out. So I waited for an hour while all my friends had fun. And then by that point in time, my swimsuit had dried. So it was like, you know what? Um, there's only an hour and a half left to this party. I really don't want a wetsuit on the way home. I'm just going to change back in my jean shorts. And I'm just going to kind of enjoy from the side. So I didn't enjoy John's birthday party. I just kind of watched everyone have a good time. But again, at least I played it safe. So, so these things really made this formative impact on me when I was growing up. And now as an adult, there's so many more things that can go wrong all the time. But I try to do something about it. Like I wake up at 5 a.m. every day to try to exercise before I work because that reduces stress levels, right? 10 p.m. every night I'm in bed to get my seven hours of sleep because that's going to reduce the risk of heart disease, right? The more you know. Even though I don't like these foods, like a few years ago, I started making myself eat tons of spinach and almonds, like all the time, because they're superfoods. I read an article. And so like every time I went grocery shopping, I'd buy two bags of almonds, unsalted, right, blood pressure, and I'd buy three bags of spinach, and I would sit there every week and just house them, just make force feed myself to eat all of these, right, to help myself somehow. And I've been doing that for years and years. But in spite of all this, all these steps I've taken, last year, middle of the night, something happened and I woke up to these sharp radiating pains coming from my lower abdomen. Felt like I had like drunk a cup of thumbtacks. And it's an odd thing because it's one thing to go to bed when you're not comfortable, when you're you know, in pain, trying to sleep. Something else to be jolted awake by pain that wasn't there, right? It's alarming. So I went on WebMD, <laughs> which is my jam. 
because you can plug in the most benign of symptoms and WebMD is going to say that you know you have this rare disease that we thought was eradicated. So I, I plugged them all in and WebMD said that I had a sexually transmitted infection and I freaked out until I remembered that you have to have sex to get one of those. So it's a technicality. This is in the middle of the pandemic. I had so much to shake anyone's hand for like, you know, a year. And I was thinking about it more and more. And like, even before that, like dating prior to that just involved meeting someone for coffee and then, you know, talking to them about like where they parked and where they drove from and then saying, sounds good, and then never seeing them again. So it was not a sexually transmitted infection whatsoever. And I dug around a little bit more and WebMD said there was also a slight chance that it was a urinary tract infection, which I didn't know men could get. But like, it's possible, right? Some can. So I'm like, okay. Next day, my doctor, uh, when their office opened, I called them, but they were busy because they had a lot going on. We all had a lot going on. I understand something. I'm going to play it cool. I'm going to wait for you to call me back. And while I waited for them to call me back, I read about how if they're left untreated, urinary tract infections can cause kidney failure. And I started to spiral a bit because every few hours, this pain would come back and I would double over and I would just imagine my kidneys shutting down, just sitting in my apartment by myself. And it was like I was living with a time bomb. Like, I didn't know if and when it was going to go off again. I convinced myself, yeah, okay, that's got to be the last time. And then it come back worse than ever. And this went on for three days, just me waiting for them to call me back. And finally, I said, enough's enough. I got to do something about this. So I went to a walk-in clinic. A walk-in clinic, really close to here, actually. And I walked in, and it was super nice. There were, like, all these leather couches and these chairs and all these pictures on the walls, these big portraits of all these smiling people who were like super happy because they just got their ointment or whatever it is. Like the whole vibe of the place just said like, we are going to overbill your insurance. Don't even worry about it. So I walked up to the receptionist and she was behind the plastic shield and she had the mask and she had the face shield on because we live in this waking nightmare. And I went up to her and I said, hi, I'd love to see a medical professional. She goes, of course, what about and I said, I'd rather not say it's kind of personal so if I could just see someone. She goes, yeah, that's fine, but I need to know what to tell them. And I said, but I want to tell them. And we went, we went back and forth for a bit until she said, I can't let you see anyone until you tell me what it's about. So I said, okay, fine. I, I believe I have a urinary tract infection, even though I know it's rare in men. I know it's not a sexually transmitted infection because I haven't had sex. And her silence still haunts me. She just... <laughs> stared at me and wrote down just a few words and just handed it off and I was ushered back into an examination room so I went in I sat on the table I sat on top of the paper because that makes it sanitary somehow and I was there for about a minute when there was a like a polite little knock at the door and the doctor walked in and she just beamed she was wearing a mask but she could tell she just radiated positivity her eyes were huge her face was like 90% eyeballs right and she sat down on this little stool with wheels and she rolled over to me and she kind of playfully put her hand on the table next to me and she said, so what is going on? <laughs> and I told her, I told her how I, I am always a little concerned about my health and about how I try to do things to prevent, you know, illness and problems, how I exercise and how I get enough sleep and how even though I don't like them, I make myself eat tons of spinach and almonds like all the time. But in spite of all these steps I'd taken, it didn't really matter because now in this moment, I told her, I worried that I had a urinary tract infection, even though they're rare in men. So I don't know what to do about that. 
And she said, well, I've heard of men having a urinary tract infection before. And I said, heard of? Like, you're the medical professional. You've never encountered this before? Is this alarming? Is this like a myth? You've never experienced, like Bigfoot? You've never, you know, like crossed paths with this before? And her demeanor kind of soured a bit. And she said, okay, just give me a urine sample. So she gave me a plastic cup and she sent me across the hall and I, I filled up the cup and I put it in the little metal door in the wall, in the secret passage door. And I went back to the, uh, the examination room and I sat there by myself waiting. And I waited and I waited. And about a minute into this, I was like, I feel better. Because I was doing something about it, right? Like I was going to get my answer soon. I was going to find out what was causing this so the pain wouldn't come back. I was taking charge, as I always tried to do. And then I waited five minutes. And then it turned into 10 minutes, 15, 20. And I started to panic a little bit because what if something was wrong, right? What if they were all talking to one another out there? What if they're like, oh, no, I don't want to go in and talk to this guy. Though, well, Who's going to tell him, right? And I sat there and when I was really starting to lose it, there was a different knock at the door. It was much more brusque. The door opened and a different doctor walked in. And I really started to spiral because they had to send in reinforcements. This woman was super short. She was very tiny and her eyes were just like pinpricks. They were just so dark and beady. And she marched right up to me. There was no bedside manner, okay? That's my one note. She marched right up to me and she said, did you look at your urine sample? And it's like, it's your job to look at it. Like, it's my job to fill it, right? Like, I did my part, right? Like, my box has been checked. And I kind of shook my head, and she, her eyes narrowed even more if that was possible. And then she held up my urine sample between us, just face to face, like six inches from each of our faces. And it's a really weird thing to look at your own urine with another person. <laughs> I had never done that before, right? I felt like a dog that had had an accident in the house, and she was showing me what I had done. Like, look, at this is unacceptable. Look at this. She held up in front of me, and I couldn't believe what I had missed because floating in it was what looked like a giant, jagged watermelon seed. And I said, is that? And she goes, yeah, it's a kidney stone. Didn't you feel it come out? And I was just dumped on it. I just kind of shook my head. And then she explained to me what I had been feeling over the previous three days was this kidney stone working its way through my system, okay, excruciating. And the last bit, the part that's normally the most painful, for whatever reason, I didn't feel. And she attributed this to hydration and trajectory and angles, like some sort of messed up physics problem, right? But she said it was a freak medical event. And I kind of took all this in. And then she, as I was processing this, she said to me, in all my years, I have never had someone come in complaining of pain due to a kidney stone, be told to give a urine sample, pass the kidney stone into the urine sample, the same urine sample that we were going to analyze because of the kidney stone pain. That has never happened. It never will happen again. But you are so very fortunate because now we know what this was. You know, the pain's not coming back. And I kind of sat with this and I said, yeah, but what caused it? She said, well, have you been eating foods with a lot of folate? Because folate can build up and cause kidney stones. And I said, that doesn't sound like me. And then she handed me a laminated list of foods high in folate, you know, because everything is laminated in the doctor's office because that makes it sanitary. And the top two foods on that list, spinach and almonds. <laughs> so this was a very valuable experience for me. It really just was served as a good reminder that maybe worrying about my health isn't the best thing for my health. And so the other night I relaxed and I had ice cream. I highly recommend it. I don't know if you've had it lately. They've done some wonderful things with it. 
and I was really enjoying myself, but shortly thereafter, I was feeling really uncomfortable and bloated, and so I went on WebMD. And WebMD said that I might be lactose intolerant, or that I just might be dying, but I guess we'll have to see. So, thank you. is all for this week's episode folks this is dolly parton and kenny rogers behind me now with islands in the stream a song originally written by the Bee Gees, i believe before that a story by brian kett who you can find at brianket.com that's b-r-y-a-n-k-e-t-t and before that just all kinds of interstitial audio craziness from king missile and ace of base and our editors john lasala and taj easton and hope brush our episode editor jeff Barr. we all went balls to the wall <laughs> with, with penisy stuff and we hope you did too don't forget the Risk Anecdote Pitch Party is July 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern. You bring an anecdote to share to this big Zoom party we're having. You shoot for three minutes for the length of your anecdote because we will stop you if you go over four minutes. And just think on one moment in time that was especially mortifying or hilarious, or scary, or beautiful. There's lots of helpful guidance at risk-show.com slash anecdotes. We'll post the link to the party in the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook, but if you're not in the group, you can always just email me for it at kevin at risk-show.com. And once again, I'm thinking of relocating. So if anyone out there knows someone who lives in Thailand, or anyone out there might be thinking of also moving to another country, any other country, email me at expatnetwork994 at gmail.com. I'm having lots of interesting conversations with lots of different people. 
Folks, patreon.com slash risk is where you'll find a new conversation between myself and Reba Sparrow and Eric Scheuer of the Mystery Box Show in Portland about their experiences producing one of the great storytelling shows, plus dozens of dozens of other bonus stories and conversations like that one if you become a member and help keep Risk running at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Beside that, look up our school, The Story Studio. We do one-on-one storytelling training, group workshops, and corporate workshops at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I saw the pee. I saw the pee.